Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Hello, Jim speaks Arabic and is a god. She's going to mold Miles to be her perfect human being. Jim is so hot right now in all caps. He's an Ed Claire. Miller is a, is a walking cartoon character. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode two, Anchors Away. Hey, it's Lauren. Hey, it's Jesse. And we are back for season two. We are. We're back in our in our traditional recaps of original Murphy Brown. We've been really enjoying getting distracted by the current and newly alive, or I would say newly resurrected. There you go. Land of Murphy Brown, but we have to go back to the original so that we can continue. As no one will be surprised to hear, I am very excited about this episode. I wonder in particular. why. Jim, Jim, You know, Jim, there's just a lot Jim, of love. Jim, 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 Jim. I love him. So this episode <laughs> was directed by... Barnett Kelman. It is written by Catherine Baker, who we talked about last season, is a freelance mm-hmm. writer. So she was not mm-hmm. in the room. It's to give them a bit of a break. It's interesting. It's the beginning of the season. Yeah. It aired September 25th, 1989. So the title Anchors Away is a pun. Get it? Anchor Away. When we say away, you probably can't tell which way we are spelling it. But the title is spelled A-W-A-Y as in an anchor going away. That's what I was alluding to. Thank you, Jesse. Whereas it is a pun <laughs> on anchors away, A W E I G H, which it means to drop anchor, funny enough. So it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. But the first thing I thought of, of course, was the movie Anchors Away with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly, mm-hmm. 1945. I definitely thought of the March song because I was in marching band. Uh- Maybe you should speak of this because I did not know. It is the fight song of the United States Naval Academy and the March song of the United States Navy. It was composed in 1906 by Charles A. Zimmerman, and the lyrics are by Alfred Hart Miles. I did not know this. I learned a thing, Jesse. <laughs> you learned a thing. You're good at learning things. I am good at learning things. So the music in this episode is the classic Chain of Fools by Aretha Franklin. Uh, some of you, like I, may also recognize it from The Commitments. But it is a song written by Don Covey. Um, Aretha first released a song as a single in 1967 and it subsequently appeared on many of her albums. It reached number one on the U.S. R&B chart, stayed there for four weeks, went on to number two on the pop chart in 68. Uh, It won the Grammy Award for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance and later a Grammy Hall of Fame Award. It hit uh, number 249 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time in 2004. And, you know, I realize this is the first time we'll be talking about Aretha Franklin since she passed. Yes. We were so pre-recorded and we also Mm -hmm. focused so much on the other aspects of the songs and the lyricist. Mm -hmm. And it, it just it surprised me. I thought, oh, we really haven't taken the time to really talk about Aretha. And I think it's because we assumed everyone knows about Aretha, that there's really not a huge need to to talk about her in the sense that, oh, well, everyone knows everything about Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. Something really interesting was I got to be in the audience uh, for the Friday taping of the revival after Aretha had passed, mm-hmm. and they actually played the clip from the episode. Mm-hmm. And it was very surreal to sort of be in that room and watch everybody who had been there originally, including us obviously mm-hmm. in the audience, watch that clip again as a tribute yeah. to her. You, you felt the loss of Aretha Franklin. Aretha meant so much and really transcended her her genre as an icon. She she really touched so many lives beyond any beyond her particular demographic because she was just one of those 
those icons and talents and and change makers that we we don't get to see very often. Her loss buffeted many generations and I know that I personally was inspired by her as a child and uh, she was one of my heroes and seeing the effect of her music, of her life, of her representation across the world, seeing the people who came out to speak Mm -hmm. um, about what she meant to them uh, was quite amazing to witness. Um, It's one of those times when I was actually really glad that I was living in an internet age. I could witness that. The, the, yeah, the funeral was really, really beautiful to see. And um, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we take for granted the legends that are among us until they're Mm -hmm. gone because they've always been there. Well, no, and I think that's the, the beauty of her contribution and her legacy is that she's always going to be around for us. Mm-hmm. She lives on in her own music, in the music that she inspired, in the women and the people of color that she empowered with just being who she was and the lives that she touched with her philanthropy. I think that's probably one of the most beautiful things about her is that her legacy is so far reaching mm-hmm. and that I I look forward to seeing that when I'm when I'm of the older generation, knowing that people still talk about her. They will live on through their music and through mm-hmm. what they left in other people. You know, that's mm-hmm. sort of the most, I think, amazing thing that must be so hard if you are that person to realize is that it's not just that this music is left when you're gone, is that the feeling and the emotion and um, the change that you helped in other people stays within them. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's what heaven is. Maybe that's uh, living on in other people. I'm uh, I'm endlessly fascinated with the concept of legacy these days. And it's something that I probably has been spurred on by losing these icons. Yeah. Um, but we are so excited to have much more Aretha yes. to go around in our recaps and the fact that we get to keep experiencing her and also consciously keeping her work out there. So let's go into that cold open, which is an amazing cold open. Because we have a Secretary Wanted ad, which says, to assist well-known network anchorwoman, heavy phone work, knowledge of word processing, must type 70 words per minute, even temperament, non-smoker. Oh, it calls back to so many. So many things. Now, interesting enough, according to the Murphy Brown book, something very similar to this, I assume with words, with the secretaries, is shown to the live audience during the warm-up. Guess what, Mm. guys? They're now starting to do that during the revival. Yeah. So uh, everything old is new again. Yes, it is. (laughs) Now, the funny thing about this opening, which is all of Murphy's secretaries, most of the good secretaries from season one to Chain Mm -hmm. of Fools, the song that we just talked about. Which, aren't they a chain of fools? It is the best in terms of putting together music and Mm -hmm. inside jokes you know, and, and our cold open montage, right? I, I love that we start with Robert. Of course. With, uh, our less than Robert. Have- not the fully realized later Robert. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but the crazy part is, is that for the longest time, I thought I made this opening up. Oh, because it was cut? It was it's cut from the first run syndication. Got it. So I am figuring out doing this podcast and looking back that I'm pretty sure, like 99.9% sure that episode nine was my first Murphy Brown. Oh. So I did not see the first eight episodes of season two unless they were in syndication or they were rerun. Okay. And in fact, when I was working on this episode for the podcast, I had a moment where I went, wait a second. Did I, how did I see this episode then? 
oh, it must have been rerun. And I went back uh-huh. to the sheet that I got, mm-hmm. the schedule sheet. Yeah, it was rerun in the second half of 1990. Of course. So my memory is pretty damn good. It kind of cracks me up. I believe, Lauren, that you are at some point going to have to accept your super brain and its powers. Thank you very it's much. Pretty great. Um, You're very welcome. My brain needs a cape. Yes, it does. I'll make you one. Oh. Uh, well, quick, may I also ask, do, do we know if jobs list typing speed anymore? Oh, I'm sure they don't. Because it's it's very funny for me to see that because I remember considering my typing speed when I was probably in junior high, Ooh. early high school. Like that was still kind of spoken about. And then I I started to notice as, you know, we all got used to computers and being on on the internet and so on that I never see word per minute listed yeah. anywhere anymore because to me now, 70 sounds real slow. <laughs> oh, wow. Interesting. Because you're not using a word processor or a typewriter anymore. Yeah. You're using your keyboard. So the actual speed has been, as far as I understand, has been exponentially grown. Uh, so we go into the scene. Uh, Murphy comes out of the elevator and she sees a new secretary and just her entire body just kind of deflates. It's such a great Ugh. visual moment of another one. Now, this outfit, I love this outfit, but this outfit is a key part of the very elaborate season two uh, publicity bonanza. Uh You know, usually you can go, okay, that's the season two picture. That's a season three based on the hair and the outfits. But there's a couple of different things. There's there's sort of the fake set with Murphy in the red outfit from Brother Silverberg. And then there's a lot of stuff with her wearing this outfit. Which I think yep. is very Catherine Hepburn-esque. I really love it. It is. That's why I love it. With the hair pulled back and the tassels oh. on the side and the bow. And that oh. I I love, it's one of my, to me, this is one of the iconic outfits for Murphy. And it may be because it's in those publicity photos. But I, yeah. I it's going to be on my my top three when we do the end of the season. It's, I, oh, I'm just I love it. it. I think it's it's just, it's very quintessential Murphy. And, and I mean, I definitely lean toward the Catherine Hepburn style Mm -hmm. it just feels like a a woman who is comfortably in charge of her life and her career in a man's world and i just can hear that slight drawl out of the corner of her mouth that i would hear from hepburn i just it makes me Mm -hmm. so happy so murphy's first words to her secretary is (laughs) let's cut this short have you ever been institutionalized and it's the first time watching this not to give away i guess what kind of secretary she is that her voice already has a bit of a sex kitten thing going on. Didn't notice that before. You hear the future. Mm, yes. So this secretary, like a lot of Murphy's bad secretaries at the beginning, seems great. She called and almost threatened someone to fix Murphy's broken typewriter. She adjusted the, the temperature in Murphy's She's office. Awesome. Murphy is so impressed. She wants her to write her birthday on her desk <laughs> calendar. Jim arrives. Morning, Murphy. He's got a bit of news. He's got a bit of news. Bit of news. Oh, nothing much. They go over to the coffee island. He brings over Corky and Frank, and he is so excited. He's just, he's, you see the little pep in that controlled step. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, Jesse will now do the monologue. (laughs) Excellent. You know me so well. Mm -hmm. So they ask, what is the news? And Jim says, oh, nothing much. I just wanted you all to know I'm going on assignment. And there's, Everyone's so excited. I mean, Frank's reaction. Yeah. Jim, like so stoked You're for him. You're one of me. Like, You're one of me now. You can see their excitement for Jim. Mm-hmm. I also love that the way he says assignment is like with a capital A. <laughs> it's going on assignment. And he goes, yes, yes, it's very exciting. 
the brass called, asked me to go to Libya with the recent events. And Murphy can't remember the last time he went out on assignment, which am I right that it's before FYI? That's why she can't remember. Yeah, it's before FYI. Yeah. Um, and he says, June 1973. I went over to the White House lawn. We were in the thick of the Watergate. I'll never forget those clear, bright nights with only the gentle hum of the paper shredders marring the pristine silence. God, I've missed it. I love that joke. Oh, I love a good shredder joke. I, mean, I love a good Nixon joke. And I realize it's because yeah. I grew up with most of my comedy written by baby boomers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of Nixon jokes and Watergate jokes mm-hmm. in Murphy Brown. But I, oh, I remember yeah. that I, I don't think I do it anymore, but I used to always say whenever I, I used a shredder, I go, I feel like Nixon. Oh, It's my own I, little joke. And I grew up with it as well. I laugh about Nixon and shredders all the time. No, it's definitely something I think influenced many of us. So thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. So yes, Frank is super excited. You know, he welcomes him back to the fraternity. It's a little action, a little danger, life on the road. Wild man. Corky's response. Yeah, she scolds Frank to get married. I saw she's like behind his shoulder and just like get married Frank to which I wrote Corky is a Jewish yenta it makes me so happy uh so Murphy promises to keep the anchor desk warm for him Jim has to get ready to go he's flying out at midnight tonight he has to talk to his producer meet his crew and Frank says that doesn't give them much time you know he better call Phil Murphy knows exactly what Frank is talking about you know make it seven she'll let everybody know and uh Jim goes hey now hey now no need to make a fuss but he's so excited He's like, oh, make a fuss. He goes, oh, what the hell? Make a fuss. Now, <laughs> He's just he, oh, yeah, excited Jim. I really love the way that Charles Kimbrough was playing this because it's, it's the Jim that we know, but it's like just a little bit more sort of pep and excitement and energy yep. that we're not used to to know that this is really a big deal for Jim. And you're seeing, you're seeing younger Jim. Yeah. You're seeing like he's got a little, he's got a little of his groove back. And he's so excited. <laughs> For most people who are watching the TV land copy, you think that this just goes to Frank and Corky going off to plan it. But actually, there is a little cut section where Corky doesn't know what's going on. And so Frank explains what this is, that it's a traditional war zone send-off party. Mm-hmm. It's their last chance to blow off steam, surrounded by your cronies, telling old stories until you stagger out in the morning sun with the smell of cigar smoke in your hair and stale beer on your clothes. Corky mm. doesn't like this at all. And she feels that if that's Frank's idea of a party, maybe at the end of the night we can snap each other with towels. <laughs> so that's what le- oh. so that's what leads into Quirky then saying that she's going to help Frank plan it because she's she's going to call the florist. Luckily, the fall annuals are in. Oh, it's very interesting to hear a woman make a locker room joke in combination with Frank's comment about welcome back to the fraternity. Oh, yeah, good and, point. you know, like that Corky's commentary about like smack each other with towels, like that that really lays out that this is has been a boys club for a long time. And the fact that Murphy is part of the boys club of this, this tradition and that we find out, you know, later that no one clues Corky in on it is very interesting to me. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely, I mean, look at, We'll, we'll get to the gifts in a moment. It feels very stag party. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's very stag yeah. party. But then as Murphy descends into her office, our, uh, our secretary... Oh, by the way, I feel like I need to say this really quick. So this actress is listed as Barbara Bush. What? She eventually changed her name in 1991. I wonder why. Um... <laughs> It's, but it's not like she was the vice president. I mean, I guess it's a difference between like being the vice president's wife and being the first lady, right? Yeah. 
And then about 91 or so, it's hard to tell, she changed her name to Barbara Tyson. Interesting. Yeah, right? Did she get married? I mean, maybe, but I could understand not wanting to have a screen slash stage name that's Barbara Bush. It would be confusing. Yeah, we're like, is Barbara Bush now in in pictures? And I have to say, when I would see it on IMDb in the parentheses, I thought, wait, is there like archival footage of Barbara Bush in this episode? I mean, it's interesting because we talk about, I was just having this conversation recently with people about stage names Mm -hmm. and often the choice is made, what people probably don't know, the choice is made to have a stage name because your name is already taken in an equity. Exactly. um, And they can't have to, hence why you see a lot of middle initials. But that is, I've never considered having to change your stage name or to a stage name because you have the same name as somebody who's a notable figure. Oh, oh wait. Uh, Albert Brooks's real name is Albert Einstein. Stop. I can't believe I didn't know that trivia. And his father was a comedian and did it because he thought it was funny. What a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> what a jerk. Now on to one of my favorite Murphy Brown moments of all time. We find out that Murphy's secretary is making some money on the side, hmm. doing no- nothing that's nothing that's wrong, just that she should not be doing it on work time. She is running a phone sex line through Murphy's office. <laughs> and she takes off her glasses, and she's her special little friend, Ugh. Bambi. She, I realize she's doing kind of a Marilyn Monroe thing. She is. I didn't realize it until I tried to mimic her. Um, I call it uh, sexy baby voice. It is sexy baby voice. Oh, you're right. Ugh, I hate sexy baby voice. <laughs> but my undies in the icebox. That's, that's my impression of Marilyn Monroe. And Murphy comes out and hears most of it right before Bambi's about to get the credit card. The most important part. Ugh. Well, actually, I do got to give I got to give Bambi some some like entrepreneurial credit. She's like, oh, and I would love to continue with you as soon as I have your MasterCard visa. Like, she goes right into, like, commercial mode, and I love it. It's also a great joke to be like, this is what this is. We know what this is right away. It's so well done. But my absolute favorite thing is Murphy taking the phone (laughs) and going, Bambi just got sent back to the forest. This is Thumper. (laughs) And the audience goes crazy. It's so good. It's so good. And I it's such a great clip to just show like this is Murphy Brown. And the fact that Thumper has two meanings also makes me super happy. I mean, Thumper's the better euphemism. Then something which is probably unlikely but still cracks me up because it's funny mm-hmm. is Murphy gets convinced by the guy on the line to help him out. And he hasn't even paid yet. Here's the thing. He hasn't even actually paid yet. No one owes him anything. (laughs) Well, that was the thing is like at first when she continues, as you're about to explain, I thought it's because he's like, well, I paid for my time because that seems to be the reaction she's having is like, well, since you paid, but he didn't pay yet. Well, maybe she didn't know. Maybe she didn't overhear that part. Well, she walked out for the Visa MasterCard. I know she did. She hear it. And I don't really see Murphy caring if the guy exactly anyway. But it's so damn funny. So very unenthusiastic. Murphy has phone sex. Yes. And then the best part of the joke (laughs) is that it's over very quickly. And she looks at her watch and goes typical. (laughs) So good. A joke I didn't get as a child. And you know what? Shouldn't have gotten as a child. And that's okay. You know what horrifies me is I think I got it as a child. <laughs> oh, no! There's a famous hey, story progressive. of my my family sitting around and I'm about three or four years old. And my sister is starting to look uncomfortably because the show or movie or whatever the family was watching started to get steamy. And they started looking at each other like, maybe we should take jesse out of the room for this apparently i turned around and asked my parents are they going to have sex now 
You were three? I was like three or four. Damn, girl. I, my People did not censor me enough, I think. <laughs> That's funny because, I mean, I was pretty young when my mother had the sex talk to the point of which I don't remember how old Oh, I no was. one had had a sex talk with me yet. I just was not oh, no, kept yeah. from rated R movies. <laughs> oh, I get that. Oh, I get that. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I thought I was pretty young mm, is what I yeah. mean. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know I got that you didn't need the talk, which <laughs> is pretty like, great. Jesse. <laughs> Jesse, um, no, my my mother opened up my dad's sock drawer and pulled out condoms and then talked to us. Wow, well, that's responsible. Yeah. Now here's the thing: Murphy doesn't fire her. No, we don't see her get fired. I I believe my head canon is that Murphy recognizes that she is an asset and and <laughs> respects her entrepreneurial spirit in the sex industry. That listen, that's true. She she really 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 needs a good secretary. And this girl is good. So maybe she thought she'd work with it. Yeah, she lost highly competent Robert. <laughs> but obviously at some point we know she's gone. Yeah, I have a feeling that she um, did not learn discretion after this scenario. And if there's one thing Probably. that Murphy needs, it's discretion. You know, because somebody could find that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there are records. Cut to Phil's. My favorite thing about this is just the visual of Jim in his full classic reporter hat and trench coat. It is... In a, in a, mm. I mean, there's also something else that we'll talk about in a second. But just yeah. the outfit itself tells the story of the pride that he has, the excitement, yes. that he has, the fact that he has had that outfit ready to go. Because mm-hmm. like, you know that Jim won't wear something that isn't, you know, fresh and pressed and clean, which means he, he didn't just pull that out of like some mothballs. Like he has had that kept up. I, I think it's it's a matter of, we talked about this before, about Jim wanting to remain relevant and not feel like he's being put mm-hmm. out to pasture, which is something that happens Very much, yeah. um, in this conversation, in this episode. And seeing him in that outfit, like you just know the pride that he has in wearing this. Now he also happens to have a bra on top of it. A stuffed bra. Yes, pretty, pretty, pretty well endowed there. It is an, a perky endowed bra, black, mm. that he is wearing over his trench coat. If you look up nostalgia in the Murphy Brown Dictionary, uh. there's a picture of Jim Dial. And, and I don't want to say he's someone who lives in the past because that's terrible to say. He just reveres the past and history and his life. Yeah, well, and I think that it must be very difficult to be someone who is at the top of his game, who was mm-hmm. the, I mean, as Frank calls him a little bit later, the man of the hour, and to watch that happening around you for other younger people. It's, and I agree with you. It's not as much that he's living in the past as you hold on to those moments when you were relevant. And that's what you that's what you know. So he cherishes yeah. those memories and is just wants them. I, I, I can definitely see a matter of wanting them to come back. You have you have something about this moment, right? So in the original episode, it does not cut into him wearing the bra. He opens the box and he he sees what it is and he he goes, I think this is going to be my favorite. <laughs> and we find out that this one's from Murphy. And she says, you know, something to remember me by, Jim. <laughs> so we lose the whole of who gave him the gift, mm-hmm. which I think is important. I'm not going to lie. My brain had decided Murphy gave that to him. Interesting. Because Murphy is there and Murphy's always the one to be not only and equal with the men, but sometimes to top them in their own stuff. Mm, Yeah. To prove that she belongs there. I also could see Frank not giving that gift 
because Frank is neurotic about not being a jerk. It makes me think about the fact that when I hang out with men and women and we're making jokes, usually the women are the ones who are the most crass and willing to be on the nose and make the mm-hmm. men uncomfortable. So if there's going to be one where an actual bra came into the room where a, where women were present, I believe the woman did it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Two points for Jesse. Boom, boom. Two points for Diane English, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Among the other gifts, there are dried prunes. I want to know who gave that to Jim. There's also a blow-up mm-hmm. doll. I really want to know who in the office gave that to Jim. Stag party. Yeah, it is a stag party. As he's talking and being very gracious and, you know, adjusting his bra on himself, Corky leans over and says that she hopes Jim can find a use for her placemats when he gets back. No one told me. She got him placed. She got a practical gift, guys. A practical gift. She got him classy gifts where, you know, the perennials, had they been present would have been appreciated mm-hmm. she was not given the stag party information which i think is a is a jerk move from the group or maybe they thought that she got it i don't think so <laughs> i don't think they got they thought she, i just think they did not think yeah, of her. i mean we'll talk about some some of the really great looks that frank and murphy give themselves uh in her mm-hmm. townhouse she's not part of the gang yet exactly there's a little bit of of othering with with yeah. Murphy. i i genuinely believe that either no one thought to include her mm. or or everyone kind of enjoyed the idea of what Corky might bring being on the outs with this. Yeah, it's hard to know. I like to think that they just forgot to tell her. I'm going to call it, there's a bit of micro-bullying of Corky in this episode. It's not Aww. It's not the really mean stuff that we saw in like Devil with a Blue Dress, but the looks that are given, the uh, the fact that she kind of has to fight to be included is a little... A li- it's it's definitely more well-intentioned than it, than it had been previously in, in the beginning of season one. But there is a bit of like, guys... You could have told her. Like, you could have told her. I, I don't mean to condemn all of them, but it does. It stood out to me a little bit. The looks were got a little bit much for me by the end. Well, it's great that she's gradually and realistically being welcomed into the group. I don't know if mm, this feels a little a couple steps back for me. Oh, OK. I'm, I, but also gradual sometimes is steps forward, steps back. Yeah. That is gradual. But I do want to give her credit, as I often do, that she shows a lot of grace and gumption in the face of not being included. She stands up for herself and she continues to contribute, she including does. later in the townhouse when I feel like Corky really shows up. So Frank asks the man of the hour to do a speech. And then we get my favorite thing of Jim, Jim, Jim. I wrote that Jim stands up in the most glorious way. Mm. He is composed and regal in his reporter look with a perky stuffed bra pointing the way forward. Like somehow he stands there this with this regal, prim, proper composure while wearing the most ridiculous accessory. And you just, you take him seriously and you love him so much for the fact that he can have this gravitas. He says that he's glad to have everyone in one place. He wants to tell them something he has always wanted to say. He's like gearing up for this beautiful speech about his probably his life as a reporter and who they are to him and the teamwork. And of course, Miles bursts in at that moment. Yeah, I love that he's like, I want to tell you something that I've been wanting to tell. Like, it, like, yeah, he's so touched that Jim, who doesn't always share his emotions, yeah. is compelled to say something that he... That, he, that he, he wouldn't normally have said. I mean, maybe he's had some drinks, who knows? But I think it's because he's so touched. And again, with like the way that Charlie Kimbrough handles this, the way that he, the way he stands up, the way he speaks, like, you know, this was going to be a really powerful moment. Yeah. From Chip. And of course, Miles ruins it uh, by walking in with Miller Redfield, someone you're going to get to know very well, played by the wonderful Christopher Rich. 
Yes, Miller Redfield, welcome to the recurring crew of Murphy Brown. Nice to have you on board. Nice to see you, Miller. We'll talk again many times. Miller, he is a a very handsome younger man with a with a certain air to him. Like I can see that he is an anchor. Blonde, very affable mm. looking. He's got the hair. Got that hair, got that like that nice stance of confidence. He's from the affiliate in Hartford. And we find out from Miles, he says he hopes everyone will be very nice to him. He's getting his first network test because he will be filling in for Jim for two weeks. And, and there's some. Oh, you're about to say I what went, I was going to say. The moment. Oh, sorry. Yeah, because I didn't yeah. notice this moment until rewatching it. Oh, it is when I. It's palpable. They all know. Everyone, everyone, you see this little intake of breath, and it's not a long pause. Like they don't belabor no. it, but it's just mm-hmm. long enough that everyone freezes. And the beautiful thing is that Jim is like class itself. I nearly cried mm-hmm. the way he handles this. That's where he so just lovely. you see it and Charlie Kimbrough, like there's so much subtext happening and the way that he he is the first one to step forward and intru- and shake his hand. Mm-hmm. Of course still wearing this like this cone bra <laughs> that is pointing at Miller. But Jim is just a class act. And Welcome says and says, oh, he'll do fine. Uh, Miller does this thing, because he, of course, can't not notice the fake boobs hanging off of Jim, where he, like, as they release the handshake, he, like, puts his hand up on his, his lapel and kind of wipes it. He he puts the hand out on his chest pretty normally, and it's like a slight, like, he, he does it so subtly that it mm-hmm. almost, he's not trying to give away that he's doing it, so it yep. feels like sort of a normal gesture, and it's so funny. It is a... Uh, it's it's re- Christopher Rich does so many wonderful things in this episode. Like he really does. Well, you know they say uh, you got to be smart to play dumb. Exactly. And like if you want a masterclass in how to fill space, mm. watch the way that Christopher Rich handles every pause in the in like the second act of this episode. He, it's amazing. I wrote the same thing, and I was wondering if they were in the script or if he's adding them to make him look so more, much more dumber. So much more dumber? So much more dumber. <laughs> so much more dumber? <laughs> I'm really tired, guys. <laughs> I love that so much. But it is. It, it's because Christopher inspired you. He did. I'm taking on, yeah. uh, you know, subconsciously, Miller Redfield. Miller, Listen, Miller is one of my top five favorite recurring characters. I love him. And I love, this is such a great intro to him in this episode. Don't you think that in sort of the Murphy Brown world right now that Miller works for Wolf? He does work for Wolf. Absolutely. And he's probably like a top dog there. Like he's doing great. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that come out of his mouth are very relevant today. Yeah. Which we'll talk about. Yeah. Oh God, isn't it? Uh, there's a lot of all caps later from me. So yes, we see him kind of wipe his hand off and he's still staring at the bra. I mean, there's this slight touch of potential homophobia in that action of like- Oh uh, God, I didn't think of that. Damn it. Like, is this a man who like, is is everyone okay with what's happening here? Kind of like, it clearly isn't picking up on the stag party thing. Um, uh, now that now it's not funny to me anymore. Damn it. It's not, I don't think that that was the full intention. Yeah, I don't But they, it, it reeks to me of the like- it, everyone seems to be okay with this, so I'm just gonna... I hope not. I mean, Miller's a jerk, but uh, let's hope not. I will just pause to say that uh, homophobia, racism, misogyny, they're all gray and on a spectrum, and it's not just one or the other, like, you're a homophobe mm-hmm. or you're not. Like, the culturally, especially at this time period, people are very ill at ease at the idea of an unconventional male figure, and that could be something that's just entrenched in in his upbringing he is clearly trying to be what he thinks a a man of the 
of the news is, mm. which would not include somebody who comfortably wears a bra on the outside of his trench coat at that time. However, also Miller's an idiot and <laughs> is not picking up on the stag party element of the room. I believe that Miller has the brain capacity of an inanimate object. Yes. I, he, is an, he is an inanimate object. Yes, Miller, Miller is, a, is a walking cartoon character. But, there you go. Um, but that moment was very much like, oh, gross. That's the moment when Jim notices why he might be uncomfortable. And he goes, oh, this is my old reporter's hat, my old reporter's coat. The bra is new. Excuse me, I'm going to go mingle. And just turns off. I love the pause that Charles Kimbrough does. He has a lot of really good facial stuff in this episode, oh. but just the, the bra's new. Oh, I'm going to go mingle. Uh, excuse me, I'm going to go mingle. Uh, it's just, he handles it so well. And, yeah. and I can also see, like, now knowing what we know about the end of the episode, Jim already has caught on to what might be happening like everyone else, but he's mm-hmm. such a class act and is playing it so well that he's, like, he's very aware of this younger handsome man who could be eyeing his job looking at him as if he is a strange fossil and you you see the discomfort in jim and you the way he handles it is to just have a plum and turn around and go talk to other people because it's his party so miles walks in further into the room with miller and says my bunch my gang my compadres and i should also add my family oh that line it's so cute i the way he says each one of their names as he introduces frank fontana corky sherwood murphy brown the way he like dips down physically when he says murphy brown he's so proud and charming in this moment of his just that his respect and awe and love of these people the way the grant says it it reminds you of just how big and famous Murphy is. Yeah. And what a big deal it is to him that she is his family. <laughs> uh, so Miller is also being fairly classy out of his his awkward bra moment. He's he's very generous to each one of them. He gives them each like a comment on how much he, he admires them for a long time. They all seem to receive his words very well. They're being very nice back and seem like they're, they're inviting him into the fold. And he walks away with Miles for their brewskis. And as soon as he gone, they're gone, they just all go, I hate him. Mm-hmm. Corky, I love, is like, what kind of a name is Miller? Yeah, from uh, a woman named Corky. I, know, I was like, oh, Cork. She has several of those moments. What kind of name is Miller? Where she's not picking up on the uh, the male equivalent of what they thought she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, key on what they thought she was. But uh, Murphy says something smells funny here. Frank doesn't understand why they need someone to sub in for Jim. And with the comment of, what is this, The Tonight Show? And just to remind everybody, if you don't know, when Johnny Carson hosted The Tonight Show, there was a really big deal about there being a guest host. Mm -hmm. And eventually, the guest host, Jay Leno, Mm -hmm. became the host. Now, a lot of other famous people came in to be the guest because I'm sure they saw that as a potential stepping stone. And then famously, Joan Rivers Mm -hmm. was his guest host and was looking like she was going to maybe go to take over the show. But she got her own late night talk show and Johnny found out about it and he was not happy. And it ruined their relationship, unfortunately. Yeah, it it was rough. Yeah, so it was a big deal, not only to be the guest host, but a lot of drama over the years regarding that position. Murphy gets uh, Miles alone at the bar and asks what's going on with this guy. Uh, Is his contract with Arrow shirts up? Um, Which... I forgot about Arrow shirts. I did too. Jesse, enlighten us. 
I don't know if I can do much enlightening, let's be honest. Well, um, what you told me before we started recording yeah. was more than I knew. <laughs> sure. So so arrow shirts were actually originated with like arrow collars, which were like detachable collared shirts way back in the day. Hmm. Um, but they are a part of the larger Philips Van Huysen, Van Huysen, that shirt. Oh, Philips Van Huysen Corporation. And like I knew Van Huysen from like that's like the nicer shirt that people could afford when I was in college. Well, here's what's interesting. So arrow shirts are, you know, a punchline about a certain type of shirt and way back in like, I want to say the 20s, detachable collars and all that kind of stuff. But huh, interesting. More interesting to me was the fact that the Phillips Van Huysen Corporation owns all of these brands. Van Huysen, Jeffrey Bean, True & Co., Olga, Warners, Arrow, Izod, Calvin Klein, and Tommy Hilfiger. Oh. They also license brands like BCBG Max, Max Maria, Chaps, Sean John, Kenneth Cole, New York, Joe, Michael Kors, and Speedo. Oh, goodness. This is a massive company that has so many little things underneath it. I, I was like, I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole. But I found that very interesting that Arrow shirts that she turns into kind of a, a joke about the type of model that they might have mm. is actually part of this huge umbrella corporation that's been around for 137 years. Wow, interesting. So Miles's response makes me so happy because he turns into like a father figure for a second. And he just goes, oh, I forgot. And he looks at her and goes, you just hate making new little friends, don't you? <laughs> and I love how he says new little friends. Murphy ignores him and then does this, this lovely mini speech saying, Miles, let me lay this out for you. Jim is sent on assignment for the first time since the Shangri-Las were off the charts. A substitute anchor is brought in for the first time ever. I think the network is playing musical chairs and Jim's going to lose. I love that you also wrote this down because I think that most people would maybe bypass it. It's just, it's not necessarily hugely important, but mm -hmm. this really stands out to me because there's a rhythm in this, this little paragraph mm -hmm. that is so well-written that just is, is music, which is what a lot of dialogue that, may I say, sings. <laughs> you know, it's also the lots of the S's that are in it, mm -hmm. assignment, Shangri-Las, substitute, it's just such a great piece of writing. Well, what I appreciate about it, again, from a rhythm standpoint, is the amount of declarative statements that are made. And it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da, 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 and then right at the end is, and Jim is going to lose. And it mm -hmm. throws off this rhythm that she has been making throughout her statement. And so Jim's going to lose hits because it ends kind of the, the set phrases earlier mm -hmm. than you expect and it really drops that bomb yeah and i just it it throws me into like a lot of my iambic pentameter work uh, like they Fair, they broke yeah. the rhythm and it's it's a beautiful line and it really sets the stakes and it shows how much she cares like the idea of Jin, jim's going to lose mm -hmm. you hear the protectiveness you hear the the loyalty in her voice Mm. It it sets up the rest of the actions of this episode, and, it's, and I I agree, it's a really important line. Th this whole episode, even down to the way that Murphy looks at Jim, mm -hmm. with this this ad admiration and love, and you see it in the revival as well. Mm -hmm. And she reveres Jim as a friend and as a colleague, and she's not she's not going to stand by and let this happen. The loyalty that she has for Jim, it's the loyalty that stems from the guy who drove her to Betty Ford. Yeah, definitely. It is it is family. It is like she will do whatever it takes to protect this man. It's really beautiful. I love it. I I love their love of Jim so much in this episode. Mm -hmm. And I definitely was I almost cried several times 
because of their actions and how how they stood up for him when he wasn't even there. Yeah. Miles says, no, it's just a network test. There's no way they would do something without his input or that would mean he would be out of the loop and kind of trails off. And Murphy just goes, you're out of the loop, but you could still grow up to be vice president. Ding. Ding. (laughs) So Murphy says she's going off to finish digging and leaves Miles with a classic Grant Shaw read of, oh God, I'm out of the loop. As she comes back to the gang, she finds Miller and offers to, you know, take him out for dinner. He actually cuts her off and says he would have to rain check um, because he has to go look for a place. And you see Murphy get excited at this because she goes, oh, they didn't put you up in a hotel? And he goes, oh, yes, they did. But it's it's really only temporary. And what I love, he goes, and oh, whoa, in this very good old boy read, <laughs> whoa, a realtor's picking him up in 15 minutes because they want him to find start looking for a house in Washington, which doesn't bode mm-hmm. well for our gym. But I just, yeah. I want to give Christopher Rich kudos for the way he says that because the way he just kind of looks at it and goes, oh, whoa. It's just, he's like a golden retriever. Yeah. <laughs> We cut to the FYI set. Yeah, and uh, Miller is on set. Looks like they've just come out of a commercial. And then Frank comes over, talks about how uh, there's so many suits, he thinks someone's going to sell him a policy. (laughs) Next week, Frank will be at the Laugh Factory. Ah, I love me some Frank dad jokes, man. (laughs) Love it. And Miller, extremely condescendingly, (laughs) tells Frank that he shouldn't let them bother him. You know, he has to get used to them. Condescending is Miller for this entire scene. Oh, yes. Oh, from the body language to the words. He went from kind of like, hey, guys, let's go down to the lake and go fishing. Like he was in, you know, and the Andy Griffith show. Yeah. To I got power here. So I don't know if that was just him putting on like a fake. Well, when I was saying all of Miller is fake. I'm meeting you for the first time kind of a thing. Or like during the week, the suits really sort of puffed up his ego. No, I think they puffed up his ego. And I, but I also think it has something to do with what I was talking about earlier about implicit misogyny that he has. Yes, and he a does. and a certain entrenched toxic masculinity that exists in him that you can be an idiot and also be a pompous windbag. Oh my god, he's so working for Walt. Exactly, because they love him. They tell him how handsome he is and how smart he is. All he needs is for someone to tell him he's smart for him to believe it. He doesn't actually have to educate himself. It's like, oh no, you can be a jerk and also be an idiot, and that is what Miller is today. So Miller has come up with some ideas on note cards for Mm -mm. him and Murphy to do some witty repartee. As Frank is hearing this, he's slowly walking away, giving that great look to Murphy that we love, that like friend, like, oh, this is going to be good. Mm -hmm. You know my best friend. This is going to be fun (laughs) to watch. I can't wait to see this. Good luck, kid. I am living for the looks between Murphy and Frank this entire episode. It is such I, great friend talk. It is. Murphy's answer is one of my favorite answers I think Murphy's ever given. You're kidding. <laughs> Just the layers of that. It's so genuine. It's so honest. I don't do this. How dare you do this? You don't know me. Aren't you cute? He feels that the show needs some loosening up. You know, the audience loves spontaneous banter. Mm-mm. Miller, there's something you should know, including the definition of spontaneous. I don't banter. It's not in my nature. It wouldn't be pleasant for any of us. Murphy knows herself. (laughs) That's my favorite. She's like, I'm just going to do what's best for everyone and nope this right Mm -mm -mm. here. And then Miller does one of his classic, (laughs) I don't know what the hell I'm saying lines. Oh my gosh. I know it's hard to teach the proverbial dog the proverbial new trick. And (laughs) it's great also because the way that Murphy looks at him is, is you're an idiot. 
Also, you just called me an old dog. Exactly. Which you might think, oh, maybe he's just a real idiot and doesn't realize what he's saying. But he does realize what he's saying because uh, he goes into it's a whole new world out there. And we don't just have to inform. We have to entertain. Ooh. Mm. He's at Wolf. He's so working at Wolf right now. He's at Wolf. It's just so amazing. I mean, I know, you know, obviously we had the episode when the Jerry Gold Show was number one. You know, this is a topic mm-hmm. that is coming um, on into the end of the 20th century and has now sort of capped itself in the 21st century. It's all leading up to where we are right now. But it's just mm-hmm. so amazing to hear it, that this was a subject that Murphy Brown was very much interested in and wanted to deal with. Because that's really what this episode is about, mm-hmm. is that Miller has brought into entertain but what they're forgetting is he has no substance and then eventually the gang lets that show through well the thing that really gets me with this like we've talked about how the show is still relevant we've talked about Mm -hmm. how uh, much like the west wing like many of these topics that they talked about then are still relevant yeah yeah why we want people to be able to access the rest of the seasons but this is the one this is the first one that really kind of took me by surprise me too depressed me Mm. um it is depressing to me how long this conversation has been happening. Yes. That how freaking relevant this particular scene is. He has more to say and then he does something. Yes. Really triggers me. But just the idea of and like what has turned now morphed into the concept of fake news and what is what is being financed and and elevated within our our news cycles and I uh it's this part really depressed me yeah I mean people (laughs) say things oh what have we become and this has been a gradual build-up this didn't all just come out of nowhere nope this is not a new thing this is a byproduct of the lifestyle and the consumption of entertainment that has been going on for decades Mm -hmm. and And maybe it was so gradual that people didn't realize it, but it's all led up to the moment where we are in history, which is very sad and depressing because, you know, I've had discussions with with family members about, oh, well, it all worked out. We were fine. Mm -hmm. Well, in the moment, I know you didn't know it was going to be fine, which I've also had that discussion with, but it worked out because people worked hard. And it worked out because people became aware of what was happening and they strived against it. They didn't just sit around and wait for it to get better. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, the, I agree with you. What it made me think of is the, my frustration with people saying, just take a breath. The pendulum always swings the other way back. But the point is, is that the pendulum swings back because people stop its trajectory, stop it from swinging and force it to go back. And the idea of just waiting for it to sitting back and waiting for it to resolve itself is not how it resolves itself. So I am with you. It's it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. And recently, I have to say, um, I I had to take a break this weekend. Um, we're recording this uh, October twenty eighth, and I had to take a break from a lot of uh, the news. Yeah. Which is very hard for me because it it makes me feel guilty that I'm not being informed because I know so many people um, and know of so many people so personally and just you know of the the thick of it the they who don't 
either whether they choose not to or they just um, can't deal with it and so tune everything out. And it makes me feel guilty that I don't do it. Um, but I know I that... No, no, um, no. I, a friend of mine said that it's self-care. Yeah. And I have to remember that. But it's I hard. I think that in particular, um, I won't I won't speak for you and your personal experience with mm-hmm. the last few days, um, but it has been a it has been a particularly terrible seventy two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened most recently in Pittsburgh is uh, just numbing, um, and what happened before that, uh, what is going on? I I think there's a difference between what I want to say is that I think that there is a difference between the luxury of not wanting to talk about politics or just not wanting to read it and consciously disconnecting to regroup so you can come back and catch up. Yeah. And I think that there, that is a very important difference and distinction to make for yourself because it is self care. Um, If you let yourself be swamped by all of it, you can't breathe and you can't fight. So I just want to encourage you and anybody listening who feels overwhelmed to it's okay to take a break as long as it's a break. Yeah. And then you come back. Yeah. I have to, I have to be okay with that. And I think I, I know it's just sometimes it's, yeah, this was really hard. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. So something that Miller says is someday you'll agree with me if you want to be part of the future. And then the side hug. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so belittling and entrapping for specifically for a man to do to a woman to grab someone around the side as in the in a way that is uh superficially which mm-hmm. is another term that's defines miller just friendly and uh and patronizing but actually is a very entrapping and belittling demonstration of physicality um as somebody who not too long ago had someone jokingly pull me into a side hug and then not let me go. Mm. It is, especially when you do not ask for it and it is connected to words like this that have dismissed and belittled you. That moment made me so angry and you see it on her face that she is not having it. Yeah, no, it's what's great about it is that it's, that's, that's what sets her off because while they're talking, she's kind of looking off to the side. Mm -hmm. Murphy is being a good little girl, so to speak. And not, you know, uh, (laughs) you can tell that it's bugging her, but it's, it's the, it's the side hug and several mentions to the fact that she is in the past and she's old. Oh no, we, we are done here. Yes, we are so done. But unfortunately, Murphy (laughs) doesn't get to go into one of her famous Murphy monologues and rip Miller's head off because they're back from commercial soon and they have to get ready. So uh, Murphy sits down in her seat. She's going to be interviewing Jim in front of the biggest ass TV that we've ever seen. Hello, 1989. And Miller gets behind the desk. Uh, They come back. He introduces himself again, I guess, to remind people in case they've just tuned in. Who the hell is this guy? Where's Jim? And what I love is that he still thinks he's going to do banter with her. Oh, he is committing. So when he, you know, sends the report to Murphy, he tries to start the banter and she just ignores him and just goes right into the segment. She completely shuts him down in the best way. It's great. Um, now, there's something about this this scene a little bit that makes me a little bit uncomfortable is... The um, laughing? The, yeah. The, so, and there's another moment later on in 
the series where there where this happens with something else. And I don't want to say I don't remember the name of the episode where it, it's a cultural thing that you're like, why are you laughing, audience? And I, you know, mm-hmm. I guess this was funny back then. But yeah, so in the background, because Jim is in Libya, you have people speaking Arabic and people start laughing, and it made me very uncomfortable. So I have a question about that. Okay, because that was that was my first reaction. Um, I I genuinely wrote I wrote, what is this laughter? I'm confused. Mm-hmm. And I was genuinely like, am I missing something that's happening? I tried to reason it as they were laughing at the particular protester who seems to be dancing and looks kind of silly, but I can't actually stick to that attempt to no, reason it. Yeah. It is, it feels like it's the language and it, that really bothers me. I do want to say that I did then write in all caps, hello, Jim speaks Arabic and is a god. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so at least Jim takes them seriously. This scene is actually one of the rare location, particularly I remember it because it is in the Murphy Brown book. Yes. There's pictures of everyone. They they actually filmed it on the Warner Brothers lot. Diane is there and Joel and Steve and all, all, the entire writing staff. But the thing that I remember as a kid, Diane was wearing a Murphy Brown gray sweater mm-hmm. so that when... I got the Warner Brothers catalog and I had a choice. My mom said that I could pick a sweater or a a Mm T-shirt. I picked the sweater. You got it. Because Diane was wearing it in the picture. Exactly. And I had sort of forgotten that until I was looking through the book and I was like, oh, when I was 13, (laughs) that's why I bought that sweater. It's really nice. It's like a sweatshirt sweater. It says Murphy Brown on it. Anyway, and actually, if anyone follows Russ Woody on Twitter, there's a picture of him and Charles Kimbrough and the entire background actors as his like banner picture is sort of a funny like we've kidnapped them kind of a thing. So you guys should go check that out. It's from this episode. So I also want to address one of the reasons why I am uncomfortable with the laughter in this moment that's not necessarily a punchline is that the severity of Jim being in Libya at this time period is is quite pronounced. Mm -hmm. The, The conflict's in Libya and the surrounding regions are uh, very complex and layered and not something that I necessarily want to speak as an authority on. But needless to say, this time period under Muammar Gaddafi was fraught with danger. And what, three years prior in 1986 was the United States bombing of Libya under the codename Operation El Dorado Canyon. And this was airstrikes by the U.S. The attack was carried out by the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, in retaliation to the 1986, the West Berlin discotheque bombing. So there were 40 reported casualties in Libya. Uh, One U.S. plane was shot down. One of the things that happened within that was that one of the Libyan dead was a baby girl who was reported to be Gaddafi's daughter. There are doubts to whether she was really killed, whether she really existed. There are also military intelligence reports citing that Gaddafi fled the location, leaving his family members behind when the missiles were inbound. Long story short, the the U.S.-Libyan relations were very tense, and this is a very dangerous assignment. This is a this is a big deal that he is there. The fact that there's like laughter going into it makes me really uncomfortable because it's really undermining. What is what is potentially happening? We see in a minute, not to jump ahead in your recap, but mm. they, they put an actual gun to Jim's head. Like, this yeah. is not funny. The regime of Gaddafi is very complex and difficult. And I just, I one of the things that I really love about this, Jim's level of professionalism and the fact that while later we see him speaking to them in English, when he turns around, the 
the ADR is someone speaking as Jim in Arabic. So you see the man who actually is a true tested field reporter. Who Ooh, is I missed ha- that. Yeah, he turns around and speaks with them and then turns back around. Jim. And, and translate. Like, Jim is so hot. Jim is like a legit field reporter in the thick of it. So as Jim's reporting, these uh, armed guards come up behind him wearing very similar, if you know a lot about Gaddafi's regime, you would recognize these outfits, mm-hmm. big guns in Arabic demanding that they turn off the cameras. And Jim is like, no. And he's saying, okay, right now I've had just about enough of these shenanigans. It's so good. He's, he's speaking like a dad at one point. He's like, well, you're going to allow me to wrap it up and then we will turn off the camera. Like it is so... Oh, I just, yes. And funny. It's amazing. And it's hilarious because like Jim will not be stopped and shenanigans will not be tolerated. And Frank is riveted. I mean, everybody is, is but Frank is just, this is good TV. Well, but also that Frank's, the way Frank is watching this really sells how serious it is. Yeah. Frank is looking as an investigative reporter who understands, like he is like clued in to everything that's happening in a in a legitimate way, not in a comedic way. No, no. This is a very serious scene, and which is what's yeah. great because then it contrasts of what a buffoon <laughs> Miller is. So Ugh. so Jim Jim lets everyone know that Gaddafi is obviously still in power, sends it back to them, and <laughs> Miller in the most pompous, <laughs> presentational, fake way having no clue of the severity of what's happening. And so it's such a great contrast. It's just, you know, you'd be yep. safe out there. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining. <laughs> like, it's like, oh my God, you are a horrible human being, Miller. You are a vacuous. There is a gun. Yes. I mean, let's just take out the fact that, okay, he doesn't have a, a, an emotional connection to Jim. This is a human being. Yes. It's like Miller Redfield is filled with whipped cream. <laughs> yes. <gasps> I support this. He's an eclair. Although I do think, oh, that, I just feel like that's such an insult to eclairs. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're out. And John says the most 1980s line ever. Nice work, people. That's one for the VCRs. Oh, I love that line. It's so great. <laughs> I wrote Miller pieces out. Mm-hmm. And Corky speaks my truth by saying, I've never seen Jim like that before. What a man. <laughs> Frank says, talk about guts. Got to hand it to him. He's still got it. Yeah, he does. And then Murphy points out that, you know, Miller's reaping the glory. Looking, chatting with the suits. Yeah. She hasn't seen smiles like that since they stole back Connie Chung. Like it was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal, guys. I remember that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. She came back to CBS. It was a big deal. Miles feels like a ball of dirt that he believed that Miller was just filling in. He's like, Jim was so happy go on assignment at his little hat yeah frank turns into a five-year-old miller's just fake he's fake jim he's a fake jim i hate fake jim i hate that fake jim it's so good it's i wrote i was like he's just a tiny little boy yeah and murphy's like what is this awake you know we can't just roll over and let this happen so she calls a meeting at her house but miles has to sadly decline because he can't go he can't get involved they say that they understand that miles you know has a responsibility to the network after all they just put a kitchenette in his office we find ourselves at <laughs> the meeting of the minds in the townhouse. <laughs> and we have Murphy giving Frank a friendly shoulder massage. I love this. It's, I love that. I also love that Murphy's giving the shoulder massage. Yeah, that's very unlike her. It shows how much she loves him. Well, and Frank is just so pent up with neuroses. Corky pacing back and forth in a great purple suit, like bows in place of buttons. Yeah, I like it. And I like that it's kind of undone. You know, they've been there for a while. Yeah. They're getting comfy. Yeah, she's like, open the buttons. Like, it's like they're they're in their meeting. As she's pacing back and forth ranting, Eldon is leaning against the fireplace, cannot take his eyes off Corky. Just more in love than ever. And Corky is in the middle of this rant about why she can't understand why the network would want to 
hire someone like that. He's nothing but a superficial blonde airhead. To which Frank and Murphy just kind of, they do this great thing where Frank just tilts his head up, Murphy tilts her head down, and they're just like, "Mm mm-hmm. Eldon swoops in to let Corky know that she moves with the beauty and grace of a gazelle and then asks her if she's ever been painted. Corky considers and she's like, oh yeah, there you know, she's had portraits. And he goes, no, but what I mean is, have you ever been painted? Frank. Well, so here's the deal. (laughs) Even with Pastorelli's charm, that is the creepiest line. It's very creepy. And I've gone back and forth between uncomfortability and then thinking, well, I think it's kind of like, you know, he's used to working with artists, artist talk. He's not using artist talk. This is a this is a line that has worked for him in the past. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's yeah, I can't explain it. I'm trying to explain it. It's creepy. No, it's just it's it's that Eldon has these qualities sometimes. (laughs) And it's He's very charming, and thus we don't label him as a creep. But that particular line, if that was said to me from somebody I don't really know, is super creepy. Yeah, that's the thing we have to remember. Like, we know Eldon. Corky doesn't really know him yet. And every time that she has seen him, he's hitting on her in this really kind of lecherous way. Because, I mean, that's I want to give as much as we love Eldon. Like, let's take a brief moment for the fact that all Corky knows about this guy is that he hits on her, and she has to ask someone to help her and get her out of it. Yeah, I see in my notes, I wrote, it comes across creepy. <laughs> it does, like, and it's fine because we do know, we know Eldon. We know that he's a good guy. We're not saying that Eldon is actually a creep. But for Corky, I mean, her responses to him make sense because she doesn't know Eldon. She doesn't know that, you know, he has a girlfriend and is committed and is harmless. Like, for her, this guy only ever objectifies her when she sees him and he tries to, to her, get in bed. Oh, Eldon, you gotta stop. You so... Don't. Murphy wants them to stick to the problem. She starts to suggest a letter writing campaign to get to show the people's support of Jim, but realizes that would take too long. Frank wants them to just go straight to the network and tell them that Miller is a meat puppet, which is one of my favorite descriptions of Miller. I do. I do love that. And then he goes, they have to listen to reason. Oh, help me. I'm hallucinating. So then Corky has an idea to which Eldon jumps up and shushes everyone (laughs) so they can listen to Corky and then steps back to give her the room. I do appreciate that she is enjoys this moment and she then says i want to short circuit his earpiece and fry his brains out and i feel like corky doesn't get enough credit for this idea because it's brilliant um, and it's so vicious eldon does this like victory fist pump in the background no one can see and you can tell and the way he beams at her you can see he has never been more in love with corky than in this vicious moment <laughs> and frank and murphy now i just want to say these two are usually and murphy especially are vicious in their ideas and they just completely shut her down. They're just like, no, no, Franco's, that doesn't help. And then the two of them and their little like party of two slowly look at each other and go, although. I find that although, because it's together, so hilarious. And I every time I got to that point, I would go, although, with them. I don't know what it is about. But the fact that it's in unison always makes me crack up. I think they could have been a little bit less of the cool kids and um, not shut Corky down so quickly. Okay. But... Then Murphy says, there is something to be said to making him look bad on the air. To which Eldon responds, I liked it the moment I heard it. And we have a very abrupt fade out. So we cut to the FYI set. Everyone's getting their hair done, their makeup. We're getting ready to come back from commercial. Murphy is wearing a great pink suit, sort of a long jacket. Mm-hmm. The necklace is great because it's per- it's long pearls and like also a long gold like, I don't really see her wear a lot of this. It feels very 1989 to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Miles is worried that it's too quiet, and he wants John to be ready to go to black at any moment's notice. 
John does the five, four, three, two. Before we get to one, she has a huge coughing fit. Mm-hmm. Murphy is a really bad actor. <laughs> She's so bad. She puts her, her hands up. She can't. No one seems to be concerned about her getting her water. No one seems to be helping her. <laughs> no, no, no. And so she has to walk off set with her hands up. John's like, what do we do? Miles makes the decision, which is really important. Cut to Miller. They move the TV so that Miller can see it. And Miller tries to interview Jim. Spoiler, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. So something also that on rewatch that got my attention, I think that Jim is purposely also making him look bad. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. Again, because we know that Jim is aware of what's going on. I think Jim makes it difficult for him. He makes it very, very difficult. cleverly. Yeah, and he corrects him. So he he makes it mm-hmm. obvious that this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Every time Miller yep. doesn't know what's happening, Jim corrects him and sort of puts words in his mouth, so to speak. And I think mm-hmm. as a kid, when I watched it, I saw that Jim was just fixing it. Like he's just being the good reporter. But I, I really think now watching it again as an adult that he is purposely showing, I know more than this this little pissant. The, the thing is, is that Jim is artfully gaslighting him. He's doing it in such a way that it you couldn't say he's not just being helpful. He's just trying to make sure that the, that the story goes well. However, everything is just perfectly corrected in a way that keeps Jim on top status-wise. Mm-hmm. And then something that we alluded to before is that at some point, Miller says, far-ranging for the Midwest as opposed to the Middle East. Miller used to be a weather guy. Yes, because it's the way the, the for the Midwest but it's the way he says it mm-hmm. comes out in such a lilt that sounds exactly like a weather guy. And then he blanches. Yeah. He looks like he realizes and he, tries. Like I get the impression in the single moment that he has spent years trying to hide the fact that he used to do the weather. Yes, I agree. Yes. I also like that before that he has a moment when he's as Jim is talking and he's looking around to people trying to get someone to help him. Yeah. When it cuts back and it looks like he's supposed to make a response, he just goes, righto. Yeah, that's what doesn't <laughs> help him, which I, I didn't remember from watching this as a kid at all, is that he's so distracted trying to get help that he's making it worse. Yeah, he's not listening. Yeah, but I also love that he realizes what's happened at the end. He's mm-hmm. smart enough to know that, that this was all on purpose. Yep. But I love that he goes, I'm Miller Redfield, and he looks to where Murphy would have been. For all of us, as if to go, you guys just screwed me. It's also a really good origin story for a villain. Exactly. Because <laughs> no matter what, I don't think he ever probably forgives them for it. Nope, he does not. Mm-mm. She has a big, big smile on her face. Ah, I must have been choking. You know, that's the first time that's ever happened. Big smile. Ever happened. And he goes, amazing. <laughs> and walks away. And then Murphy gives uh, Frank a low five and Corky a high five as they pass her. Goes over to Miles. Murphy laments how bad Miller did. You know, Murphy mentions, you know, Miles could have thrown the interview to Frank. And as they walk off together into the sunset or just outside to Phil's, Murphy tells Miles how much potential he has. Mm. Have you ever worked with rubber vomit? <laughs> I love it. I love it. She sees the potential even further than she ever had before. Yes. She's going to mold Miles to be her perfect human being. So we cut to the bullpen, I assume, the next day. Yes. And Frank is holding court at the table and is mocking Miller. And he goes, oh, and what city 
Where are you in? Uh, Libya? Is that close to Switzerland? Good skiing in Switzerland. Nice wide trails. I bet they don't have that in Libya. And Corky and Murphy are losing it. Corky's behind in the in the little coffee station. Murphy's at the table. As they're in the middle of this laugh session, Miller arrives. They all get kind of quiet and look at him. And he goes, there you are all together, feeling pretty smug. He starts talking about how they have this little club and they're also childish. And he does this little voice because everything has to be your way. <laughs> and while he's doing that, Corky is behind him in the coffee station acting like a little baby and mocking him. And I just wrote, go, Corky! A Corby thinks that that was something that was made up on the set mm-hmm. because it's not in the script. Again, classic Miller really should have stopped while he was ahead. And his next attempt to take them off their pedestals was to go, you think you're Mr. and Mrs. King and Queen. <laughs> and I just go... Chris Rich is such a genius in this character. He really is. It's so well done. So he then goes, I know what I want out of life and I'm going to get it. You can't stop me. I'm inevitable like a bad penny. And then he realizes (laughs) what he's done. And there's just this moment and they all just pause and look at me. He just goes, shut up. (laughs) And just takes off. I love it. It's my favorite Miller moment. He thinks he's about to have like a Murphy Brown-esque speech or he's like on a roll and just goes off on the wrong side. (laughs) As Miller is leaving, Jim arrives and he like looks at him with this open expression and Miller completely ignores him. And the gang acts like dad got home. I wrote that. They rush him. Jesse, stop. I'm sorry. What? I literally wrote Jim arrives like daddy came home from the wars. Exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking about like 1950s, 1960s, like dad came home from a long day of work and all the kids are just like waiting to like sit at his feet on his armchair and ask him questions about what life was like in the big world. And everyone's just so excited to see him. If I may say also what's great about Jim is that um, what he tries to say hi to Miller. Hello, young Miller. Yeah. Like he's he's, he's so very gracious. Nice. And, and, he's a class act. Yeah, and Miller just... Mm. But also... Not only is Jim a class act, but we're about to find out that Jim was aware of this the whole time. So Jim is like doing some good passive aggressive kindness, just killing with kindness. Uh No, but also because at this point, what we think is that Jim thinks that Miller is taking his spot. That's true. Yeah. And so the fact that he is playing it this way and taking this high road that we see, it just, it's so nuanced. Like what, what Charles Kimbrough is doing with the the inner life of Jim at this moment and his ability to be a class act and to be nice and and generous to this person that he thinks has taken his spot mm-hmm. is just beautiful. It's mm. it's beautiful character work. Uh, so they all want to know about Jim's trip. And so they all kind of usher him into Murphy's office. Um, I appreciate in the long the long run of this scene that Jim goes from sitting in her her guest chair to standing behind her desk. It's like Jim like gets yeah. his groove back and I ends up behind that. the desk again. Uh, they all want to know about his trip. And Jim says that it was it was stimulating, actually, more than I thought it would be. And he starts to to speak about how he had a very long flight back and it gave him a lot of time on the plane to think. And Judas, I never thought I'd be saying this. And he hopes that they can all understand, but that it's time for a change. And you see everyone kind of freeze a little bit. And he says that he's putting in for foreign correspondency on a permanent basis. I'm leaving FYI. And this is another moment in this episode where everything's quiet for a second. Yeah, I wrote so quiet. I was just like, I just wrote, owie. (laughs) And Murphy says, Jim, I don't know what to say. We started the show together. We've been together 12 years. It would seem really strange without you. Hmm. 
Frank de- jumps in with, are you sure about it? Have you thought it out? Jim says, yeah, he thought about it after Libya. The juices are flowing. The sap is rising. <laughs> I love Jimisms. And he says, I say, let some other poor soul be the desk jockey. And he goes, you all understand, don't you? And Corky, once again, speaking my mind this episode, stands up, stamps her foot, and just yells, no! (laughs) And my favorite is Murphy's reaction, which is, no one flinches, and Murphy just goes, but Corky's trying to say, Jim, if this is what you want to do, we will all stand behind you. And then Corky screams no and stamps again. (laughs) I, I love that everyone in this episode, for the most part, gets a child moment. They do. And what I think it does is it really solidifies this idea of Jim as office dad. Yeah. Yeah. They're all reacting like dad is leaving. Like dad is in trouble. Dad is in danger. Somebody else is trying to replace dad and they don't want to lose him. Mm -mm. In this moment, as they're all in angst, Miles comes in. No idea what's going on per usual with a big Jimbo. What did you bring me? Only kidding. Murphy drops the bomb that Jim says he's leaving the show. Jim in kind of dad mode is... He's like, I don't want you to feel like I'm abandoning you. You know, why not use Miller? He made some mistakes, but if you give him time and he gets them under his belt, Miles reveals that uh, the network won't be letting that happen. They think he's too green. So they're sending him to South Yemen. And what I love is Jim's response to what South Yemen means. He does this thing where he like dramatically kind of like turns his head to audience and goes, South Yemen. And does this, oh, it's so good. You know what a like sentence this was. <laughs> and what I like about what this seems to imply is that they're sending him away on assignment to try and get him to be more like Jim. Mm. Well, they're trying to get him experience to be more like a Jim. So Jim takes us in, looks a little, what it looks like at first is crestfallen, mm-hmm. and asks Miles to shut the door. Miles goes over, Jim stays in position. As soon as the door is shut, Jim shouts a huge yes and throws his hat, It which ends up being Miles catches it. I want to think that happened by accident in a rehearsal. I seriously, I my instinct is that that was a Charlie Kimbrough original. Yeah, Corby says it wasn't in the script. And this is where we get loose Jim. Mm. And Jim starts shouting, this is perfect. The little wiener, the pompous little putz boy. He's getting what he deserved. Oh, God, I thought I was a goner as soon as I got that assignment and I found out about Miller. And everyone is shocked as he's going on about. And also, I just love that he says, pompous little putz boy. They go, you knew? And he says, of course I knew. I'm a reporter. I can smell a network shuffle a mile away. Yes, Jim. Like, so hot. And Frank is like, what do you mean? What about everything you said about loving being in the field? And Jim looks at him and gets really real for a moment. He goes, get real. I've been there. I've done it. And he says, and the, the whole audience is like, yes. And then he says, you think it's romantic sharing a hotel room with your crew for two weeks? You think it's a picnic sharing a bed with Gerald, the horse Hertzfelder? He once called me Roberta in his sleep and tried to spoon me. <laughs> if that's life on the road, you can leave it to Charles Kuralt. And for those who may not know who Charles Kuralt was, mm-hmm. he had a very famous On the Road series. He hosted uh, Sunday Morning. That is a reference to the fact that that's what he mostly did. He, yep. Jim does not want to be on the road, you know. Was it a Winnebago? Was he in? I don't know. I, I don't remember. Think so? I think so, yeah. But uh, just a little reference to Charles Kuralt. So by this point, Jim has moved himself now behind the desk. So we have this lovely, like, Jim behind a desk, back in power. Like, Jim and Corky hug. Everyone's rejoicing. They have to get back to work. And they're exiting back into the bullpen with their Jim, 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 Jim. And the last people to exit are Jim and then Murphy slowly behind him. And they have a moment right at the secretary desk where she says, you really scared me. Don't do that again, okay? And Jim does this really sweet, okay. And he has this little, like, 
smile smirk that doesn't quite leave. You can tell how much it means to him mm. that he matters that much to them. And he's got, and he starts, he begins to strut down the hall to the left of the elevators with this like open position, little strut with his jacket open and everything. And then he just suddenly cries out, I am so happy. And does this wonderful jump and heel click. Oh my God. It is the most loose we've ever seen, Jim. It is. It's, I wrote, that's our Broadway boy. I know. And it's, what a great (sighs) episode for Charles Kimbrough. He just gets to let loose and. I was so looking forward to season two because as great as season mm-hmm. one is, season two is really where we get into more character yeah. moments and and most of the recurring cast starts to show up in season two. Mm-hmm. It just it it, it it fills the world out. And that happens a lot in second seasons because yeah. you have more time exactly. and your characters are already established so you can let them breathe and let them go out. And it's – he must have been so happy when he got this script. I mean, what a jewel for him. Dude, this might now – be my favorite gym episode. It's it's a great one. It's I I for, I think I forget about I re, I remember the the stories and the the lessons of this episode about Jim, but I always think of like his novel or some of the other yeah. you know big gym moments. But man, the just the the intense love for and and loyalty to Jim in this episode from the characters, from clearly the creators of the show, mm-hmm. the love that. Charlie Kimbrough puts into his performance. It's just such a love letter to Jim. I love it so much. So let's quickly talk about Christopher Rich. Christopher Rich! So Christopher Rich, my first memory of Christopher Rich is that he was in an ABC sitcom called The Charmings. Oh, Have you heard of this show, nice. Jesse? Yes. Okay, so for those who don't know, The Charmings was kind of a precursor for Once Upon a Time, but as a sitcom, in which The Charmings, a.k.a. Snow White, Prince Charming. Was it? Oh, I don't remember if their kids were involved. I'm not sure. Definitely the dwarfs were there. The, the the Wicked Queen and her mirror accidentally get transported to modern America and have to live in the suburbs. I was obsessed with Snow White as a child before Murphy Brown, very young child, because of my porcelain skin and my dark hair, <laughs> because I thought I, again, representation, guys. I looked yeah, like Snow White. Yourself. I was very, very translucent, as I am still today. Also, he played Archie in a TV movie. You know him from that. Jesse's shaking her head. And, yeah, and I have yeah. to say, I mean, obviously, Riverdale is a very different version, is the more modern, you know, comic book version. The classic Archie, this yep. is really what he did. And he's one of the best Archies I've seen. Yeah. He's amazing. It, wor- it just worked out so well. He has that, that, the look of it. He's also was in the Joy Luck Club. And I think most people know him for, um, his many years on Reba as Reba yep. McIntyre. I think probably. Most current yeah, audience would know him from that. that, and it was it was a long run. We'll always remember him as our fair Miller. I just remembered that he had a a recurring role on the George Carlin show in the nineties. Oh, hey, which is probably where I knew him, other than Murphy Brown. Best, he's a very beloved character actor who really, like you said, it's you have to be really smart to play dumb. You have to be really smart to play something that seems stereotypical or more cartoonish. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, one of the things I enjoy the most about Miller is how much I dislike Miller. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I love how much I know that I would dislike him so much in person, and I enjoy watching him be a villainous idiot. I just, I get so much joy when he comes on screen because I know that some of the most interesting conflict and hijinks are going to happen. Cause he brings out really fun things in our regulars. He does, yeah. 
So are you following us on social media? You should. You really should. You can learn all kinds of fun things about Murphy Brown. You can join us on the Facebook, the Instagram, and the Twitter. We are a Murphy Brown pod. Yes. And our website is murphybrownpod.com. Our email, if you want to send us direct thoughts, is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. For another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast.